Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, March 10th. We begin with a look at the updated refugee policy being put forth by the federal government to address the very high number of Ukrainian residents fleeing the Russian attack. We speak with Jamie Liu, a professor of law and expert on immigration and refugee citizenship law, for her thoughts on how effective the new policy actually is. Next, we continue our discussion on the war in Ukraine, specifically just how much of an impact the pullout of multinational corporations from Russia will have. We discussed the topic with Paul Klein, a social change expert and author of the new book, Change for Good. Then it's our weekly focus on City Hall. This week, Global News City Hall reporter Adam McVicker brings us the latest in the ongoing saga of the Events Centre. And finally, it's been a tough two years for local businesses. We speak with Ellen Parker, CEO and owner of Parker PR, for some tips and tricks to bolster your business during this tumultuous time. Since Russia's invasion, more than 2 million Ukrainians have fled that war-torn country with over 6,000 coming to Canada. Jamie Liu is an expert in immigration and refugee law and joins us to talk about Canada's response to the influx of Ukrainian refugees to our country. Good morning to you, Jamie. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Has Canada, I, I, I believe, made it a little easier, correct, for Ukrainian refugees to come to this country because of what's happening over there? Um, Easier and difficult in some ways Mm. because it is a faster process by which to get a a visa. So it means that potentially Ukrainians might be arriving here sooner than, say, the Syrian refugees were during that situation. However, Canada, unlike a few other countries, um, has not gotten rid of all of our visa requirements. So we're seeing um, IRCC has announced that they are bringing biometric kits and staff over to the region to start processing people. So we're really, we'll really see in the next couple of weeks how quickly the processing will occur. And it will, it will, will be seen whether, or remains to be seen whether it will be faster or not. Jamie, you know, how does this situation differ from when we recently welcomed the refugees from Syria and Afghanistan? Is it different? And if so, how? Yeah, it is different in the sense that with the Syrian and Afghan refugees, we saw Canada dedicate a resettlement program to them, meaning that it's a program where groups of people and potentially the government identifies refugees to be resettled permanently in Canada. Right now, Canada is only offering temporary protection to people fleeing Ukraine, and it means that people will be able to come for potentially up to two years, but then what happens after that? Mm -hmm. There isn't really an answer as to whether or not people will be able to stay other than those who have family in Canada. So it's an open question, and I think it it is resting on the assumption that maybe some people want to return to Ukraine, but... We don't really know how long the war in Ukraine will last and whether or not people will want to return at a later point in time. If you can imagine, you know, living your life in limbo, people want to start um, their lives, get a job, go to school, and those kinds of things take time and might um, mean that people establish themselves in the meantime. Jamie, is there a maximum number of refugees that uh, the government has said will be allowed into Canada and any stipulations on, on who? Well, they have said that they are looking at an unlimited number of applications. So the key word, as a lawyer, I see, is that it's unlimited number of applications they will accept. But that doesn't mean that there's an unlimited number of, of, of approvals because they still have the applications 
process in place to review those applications. And it is, you know, meant for people with Ukrainian citizenship or nationality. Um, We've seen other countries, especially those in the EU, um, extend this kind of temporary protection to people who had legal status in Ukraine, not just those that are of Ukrainian nationality. So it would be, I think, interesting for Canada to evolve their response to include people that might be fleeing, that might not necessarily be Ukrainian nationals, and those that might not be documented for that matter. Speaking with Jamie Liu, Liu, an expert in immigration and refugee law. And uh, Jamie, I'm wondering, you know, can we look at examples from other countries uh, that you see are doing it right and that we could adopt a similar process uh, to? Well, we've I've, I've spoken about the European Union. They have a similar response in place in temporary um, protection. They have extended that protection to people who might not be Ukrainian nationals, which I think is the right thing to do. I think because it is still early days in this recent escalation on the Russian invasion that, that you know, I think governments are scrambling and, and rightly so and, and waiting and seeing what the um, situation on the ground will be like for people on the move. I expect that all governments, including those in Europe, will review and revise their response to the refugee crisis. Um, Canada is responding. I would like to see more personally and certainly would be would like them to take up the concern that all of us have with regards to permanent solutions and also thinking about those requirements that they're putting people through before they get here. A lot of us say that a lot of these measures and checks and things like this can take place in Canada once people arrive. We're not sure why it has to be done at the outset um, in the surrounding countries around Ukraine. On that note, when, when a refugee arrives in Canada, what's the process? What happens? I mean, I don't think most of us can even probably have any concept of, of, of all the, the steps that you must go through when you arrive and set foot in this country. How does that work? Do you know? Yeah, and I think it is another a disadvantage to not setting up a refugee resettlement program dedicated to this population. When we saw the Syrian refugees come in, we saw people actually greet them at the airport. We where they had apartments and homes already set up with furniture, with clothes, where they already had people taking them to get their IDs, to set their kids up for school. This is a huge disadvantage in this program where, you know, Ukrainians may get their visa to actually come across the border and land, but there won't necessarily be people waiting at the airport or they won't necessarily have a home to go to now. Having said that, Canadians are, you know, aware of the fact that the Canadian government's doing this. And I've received tons of questions from Canadians about how do I get involved? How do I sponsor a refugee? Well, there isn't a specific program to do this, but I would say get involved with the local organizations in your city that already do refugee resettlement. You know, contact the Canadian-Ukrainian Congress, who I believe is coordinating a lot of efforts with regards to Ukrainians. So I expect there will be some resettlement support, but I think it won't be as targeted or coordinated as it was for the refugee sponsorship programs that came out of Syria. Jamie, thanks again for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That is Jamie Liu, Director of the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies and Associate Professor, Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa, and obviously an expert in immigration uh, when it comes to refugees. What? I I can't even imagine. What You know, when you say something like that, when you say something like, they're going to come here, and are they going to go home? When you don't know if you're going to go home, there it is. And if you go home, do you still have a home? 
Well, or yeah, has well, it what, been what's that look bombed? like? Are you better off not going home? We're just, we're so lucky. We're so blessed to live in the country we live in. And I know there are certainly issues that need to be dealt with for sure. But when you look at situations like, you know, how the Ukrainian people are living right now, can't even imagine. I'm glad we're welcoming, welcoming them in. I hope, you know, people are able to help out and mm-hmm. the government is able to, to figure out how to best process them and get them, get them, you know, living a life again. And when we say time is of the essence here, literally it's time is of the essence. I mean, it's not a case of, well, we'll wait and see. No, they're, they're leaving, they're fleeing, they're on the other side of the border, hopefully mm. safely, and they have to end up somewhere. And, uh, you know, to facilitate that, I'm hearing that Saskatchewan, by the way, said, hey, we'll take as many as needed. Really? Yeah. And you look at the province like Saskatchewan and their smaller population and the land base, and they say they already have quite the, uh, you know, Ukrainian community. Well, yeah. Could be a good opportunity. And we certainly do in Alberta. Uh, there you have it, right? So yeah. So if you want to help out, we'll, we'll try and collect some uh, some phone numbers, some uh, you know, websites, et cetera, where you can go if you want to help sponsor or, you know, maybe do something for the families that are coming into Alberta. We'll see if we can dig that up for you and pass that information along as the morning goes along. Adidas, Airbnb, Ikea, McDonald's, the list goes on and on. Companies across the globe are pausing or stopping operations in Russia, showing support for Ukraine and its people. But what impact does this really have? With some insight, we're joined this morning by Paul Klein, social change expert and author of the book Change for Good. Good morning to you, Paul. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Good morning to you, too. Named a few of them, but more companies, Nike, Spotify, Netflix, all examples of <laughs> thing, you know companies that are pulling out of Russia. Is this good corporate social responsibility? Yeah, I think it's essential corporate responsibility. You know, like I think there's no nothing more than that. You know, is there more to it though than just that? I mean, do they they are they doing it because they believe in it? But obviously, you know, they feel it's important to to show their their solidarity. Well, I think you know it's a mix of everything. I mean, listen, I'm not my personal belief, of course, is that um, you know every company that's got anything to do with selling products or services in Russia should be suspending us, you know, now. I think that's the right thing to do. You've got a like a Holocaust-level situation happening over there and in Ukraine, and I think that's this is the only right response. You know, I think that um, it's been an interesting thing to watch what's happening because, you know, there's some companies that jumped right in and said, you know what, we are not going to operate in Russia anymore, um, and others that have been a little slow, honestly. You know, like it was only I think Tuesday that uh, that Coke and Pepsi announced that they would they were going to suspend operations in Russia. So, you know, well, so I think that in certain cases, from my point of view, people have been a little too hesitant <laughs> and tentative about it. You know, so. I, I think that um, I think that it's happening a little more quickly now, as you mentioned. You know, there's here like in Canada Goose has stopped operations, Apple, H and M, and a whole bunch of others. Um, and I think that the good thing is is that there's some companies that have suspended operations there that haven't typically uh, been known for social being too socially responsible. Apple would be a good example of that. Uh, so anyway, it's uh, it's still obviously early days, but I think that there's. Uh, there's been a lot of good action and still a lot more that needs to be done from my point of view. Well, it's interesting to me, uh, you know, Paul, in the sense that, yeah, outside looking in, you look at these companies, you think they're being good corporate citizens. The optics are good that they're, you know, mm-hmm. you're behind the right cause. But I'm wondering, when we talk about the the reasoning behind these boycotts, could it have enough of an impact if I can't get a Big Mac in Moscow, for example? Like, is that going to have the impact that's desired or is it more so for the company brand? 
Yeah, well, it's a fundamental question, you know. Like, we guess we don't really know the answer to the first question, you know. Um, but companies, um, you know, the, it, it's a mix here because the reality is is that companies do this work um, with the knowledge that there is going to be some social impact and also with the hope that there's going to be some often considerable kind of reputational value to it as well. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think this we see this in all the time, no matter what. But here's a here's a situation where, you know, the um, I, I would say that the thing that that would be worst for a company now is to have any be seen to have any sense of sort of self interest in uh, in what they're doing with respect to Russia. You know, like authenticity and great reputation actually come when companies are are seen to be doing things that are not in their own self interest. And this would be a great opportunity to, for that to happen um, because, yeah, you're right, all too often there's been situ- there's situations where companies are doing things in a very performative way, um, and um, it's too much about yourself. And just, well, this is not the time for that. But I still can't answer the first question, like, what is the degree to which is actually going to have impact there? We just don't know yet. Can you answer this, Paul, in your expert advice then? What are some of the do's that companies should do, whether they are, you know, local or, you know, national companies or have any ties at all to Russia? What are some of the do's that we, we need to look at? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, in addition to what we were just talking about, which is, you know, suspending operations um, with Russia. Um, I would say that the other most important thing is, you know, really understanding the degree to which a company's own employees and their families are impacted by this. So, you know, do you have employees who are Ukrainian background? Do they have families there? You know, what is the impact on them practically and also, you know, from a from a mental health point of view? So the first thing that I would recommend is that companies, you know, look to their look inside and ask their own employees how this is affecting them and the and provide the support that they need to make it through this. And the other thing, you know, which is, I think, you know, an important question with respect to operations in Russia and, you know, the degree to which they're able to help their employees is, mm-hmm. like, like, how long has it been gone for? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, it's very possible this could, is going to be a very protracted situation. So there's a whole other set of questions yeah. around, well, how, how can you sustain this kind of support? What are companies going to do if they don't have revenue from Russia? So there's all kinds of longer-term implications. But I think those are the first two things I would say to do. Paul, thanks so much for your time and your insight this morning. It's a pleasure. Paul Klein is a social change expert and author of the book Change for Good, which is being released next week, March 15th. This week, the city voted on a new anti-harassment uh, bylaw and potentially uh, breathed life into the new event center. With details on the latest news from the city hall, we turn to Global News City Hall reporter Adam McVicker. The Saddle Dome is the home of the Flames for the foreseeable future after a deal between the city and Flames ownership to build a new arena fell through last year. But city officials say there could be a chance for a new facility. After hours of discussions behind closed doors, council is forming an event center committee. The goal, oversee work to get the project back on track. It comes after councillors tasked administration with seeking a third party to look for groups interested in partnering with the city to build the project, but also to determine whether Flames ownership 
leadership would be interested in re-entering discussions. Three city councillors, along with reps from the Calgary Chamber of Commerce and Calgary Economic Development, will form the committee. Ward 1 city councillor Sonia Sharp, who will sit on the committee, says she's optimistic. I think, you know, it's not if the event centre gets built, it's when the event centre gets built. And um, the one thing that I can guarantee with this committee is speed. Ground was supposed to be broken on the project in January, but the deal collapsed at the end of last year. Flames owners raised concerns with rising and additional costs associated with infrastructure and climate mitigation stemming from a conditional approval to start building. Mayor Jody Gondek says the committee won't be starting from scratch. The mandate is to build on the foundation that was created on the previous file and also to move forward in any way necessary. So I think it's it'll be a combination approach and we'll see what happens from there. The committee hopes to start meeting in the next month. Harassing somebody on the street could have some winding up with a ticket after changes were made to the city's public behavior bylaw. Starting June 1st, any communication that could cause offense or humiliation that refers to race, religion, color, disability, age, or sexual orientation could result in a $500 fine. Sexual solicitations like catcalling also fall under the bylaw. Here's what the mayor had to say. Warms my heart to think that all of us actually understand that keeping Calgarians safe and feeling that they live in a welcoming city is a priority for them. So kudos to everyone who got this done. The vote from city council was unanimously in favor. City officials say there will be a public education campaign rolled out before the bylaw takes effect in June. For these stories and more, head to globalnews.ca slash Calgary. Reporting from City Hall, Adam McVicker, Global News. One story, Andy, that Adam did not talk about was this, and it's excellent news. The Urban Hen Program is about to hatch in Calgary. I didn't write that. I stole it. I'm sorry, but it's still funny. Yeah, you're clucking excited about this. (laughs) And I know that finally you can have, you know, do it legally what you've been doing for years, which is having your hens in your backyard. So um, you can apply, and it's uh, the deadline is April 18th, I believe. Mm -hmm. Don't buy your hens quite yet because an inspector. Don't count your chickens till they're hatched, though. There's that. And uh, what's going to (laughs) happen, you can't have a rooster too loud, and an inspector will have to come and look at your set up before you can have them. Right. And they're only taking 100 applicants in this first year. More than 100 applicants, there'll be a lottery system to pick who's going to get to have hens in their yard. And it's been a tough couple of years for Calgary area businesses and business owners, and many might not know how to navigate through these different times that we're now experiencing. So joining us with some insight and tips of the trade is Ellen Parker, CEO and owner of Parker PR. Morning, Ellen. Morning, Sue. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. I know your first tip is really kind of looking at all the big turnover we've seen in businesses through COVID. A lot of people leaving, not so many coming in. But really, you want to focus on this one, on the importance of getting back to having a powerful team within your business. Explain. Yes, absolutely. So we all have something, or many of us should anyway, have called the employee handbook. And so we have here at Parker PR, we call it the work lifestyle experience booklet. Many of us have new people on our team. Many of us have onboarded new products and services. Also, what matters to our team has possibly changed. So this may seem trivial, but it's extremely important to look at that employee handbook and kind of rethink it and think if there's things that it should include. So we did a very quick survey before we updated ours to feel and to hear what matters to the team. And the key things to include in this employee handbook is the quick couple sentences about the company. So everyone can be that ambassador of the company. And like I said, it may have changed during COVID. The benefits and perks, exactly what 
folks are getting with working with you. One thing we implemented is called duvet days, which is basically more flex days. The culture code, the brand words that you're using and you're not using, like here we don't use staff, we use team. Things like this can be really important. What the dress code is, what the social skills required are. When you're speaking and having meetings virtually, I always say your face should be framed in the middle of that screen so you're still appearing professional and like the thought leader in your industry. And then, of course, the health and safety parts of that employee handbook and any important contacts. Right. Well, Ellen, you know, I mean, I think that the pandemic kind of changed all of us, uh, you know, forever moving forward. And it may mean that some businesses need to make some changes in order to thrive again with the new environment. So let's talk about moving through those changes. Any advice? Yeah, great one. So there are so many changes. You know, there's a book that I read that I feel is just a fabulous kind of look at this by John Cotter. And he kind of goes through different steps to create change because change requires work. And it requires the team to be onboarded. And we're all tired, you know, so we need to make it fun. and We need to have a process. So number one, instill a sense of urgency. And then get your coalition of leaders on your team to be onboarded for that change. So they're the folks who should create that vision and then share that vision statement. So spend time on that and then share that with your team so they can kind of see what the outcome of doing the hard work to implement change will look like. And then the fifth part of this roadmap is remove any roadblocks or create any little tiny changes within the office to make the change happen and work. Maybe people need to move around. Maybe new teams need to form. Maybe people need to go. But make sure that we're considering the roadblocks. And then celebrate the small wins. You know, there's that hilarious show Selling Sunset where they Mm. have a bell that they ring every time they get a win. We've implemented that in our office. So we kind of have incentives for people to continue with the processes to have that change outcome. And then, of course, once we have changed and we have implemented new things, maybe we're going into new markets, maybe we're selling new products or services, then revisit your culture code and revisit your culture to ensure that everyone's onboarded with that and it's reflected in your employee handbook or your work lifestyle experience booklet whatever you want to call it. Super important. I know social media is a big deal for you as well. It's spreading love and awareness, not just for your own business, but for others too. And I think that's super important. Thanks for sharing great tips with us once again. Oh, of course. Thanks so much. Have a great day, you guys. You too. Ellen Parker is the CEO and owner of Parker PR. You can get more at parkerpr.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.